welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. This episode is the second episode of a two-part series with Professor Elizabeth Anderson. In the first part, we covered her work Private Government, and we talked a bit about racism in the US. This episode is kind of an episode of two parts. In the first part, I bring to her an argument that I've been thinking about in favour of diversity in political philosophy, diversity in terms of the type of people producing it, and the diversity in terms of the sources that we might go to, to form our opinions. The second part is a little bit more unstructured. As you'll hear, I thought I was sort of wrapping up the episode, but then, as I joked, I think, in my introduction to the first part, there's a danger in having people on who you agree with too much. And we touched on a few other topics, and I decided to include that as well, or at least most of it, even though it was a little bit more unstructured, because we bounced around on a number of things that I thought were really interesting and really important. So, this episode is essentially me and Professor Anderson going off script about a range of topics. I reference some of my own work, um, my solo series in that. If you haven't checked those out, what I'm drawing from when I'm talking about those is my Libertarianism series and my Machiavelli series. Please do feel free to go back and check out both of them if you want the full context of my views. Other than that, even with those provisos, I think this pretty much makes sense as a standalone episode. So yeah, that's just a little bit of context about what you're going to hear in this one. Apart from that, let's get started. As always, if you like this episode, please do share it on your own social media, and if you can support the show in a more monetary way, consider sponsoring us on Patreon. Apart from that, let's get right to it. I loved this conversation, as you'll hear at the end. I had a lot of fun having it, and I hope that comes across to all of you as an enjoyable listening experience. I joke that I shouldn't have people on who I agree with too much. Um, Elizabeth Anderson really is, like, my sort of political philosopher. I love reading her work, and as it turns out, I love talking to her too. So, like I say, I hope you enjoy listening to this as much as I enjoyed having it. So let's get straight to it. This is part two with Professor Elizabeth Anderson. somewhat back to track. Um, We've talked, so in the racism thing, I think we're still dealing within the same sort of currency there, which is feelings of wanting to dominate, feelings of wanting to humiliate, feelings of um, the brutalizing corruption of that. Um, That's like one set of currencies, the currencies of honor and power and degradation. And then there's this other set of currencies, which is just currency, like economic interactions, structures like that. It seems to me that when political philosophy has been analysing equality, freedom, any of these big concepts, it's been very much within the first set of currencies. There's, you know, I mean, how many dissertations have been written on income inequality, right, in political philosophy? And correctly, correctly, that's a very important problem. But within that other set of currencies, it's interesting in that all of the history of political thought, you know, leading up to this point, you know, like philosophers like Hobbes and Machiavelli, all the way back to like Plato and Aristotle, are also very concerned with that other set of currencies. And it seems like contemporary political philosophy 
is to my mind inadequately concerned with that set and set of currencies to do with power and the felt experience of domination and so on. Um, well, I'll pause there before we even get to why. Do you think that broad sweeping like historical statement is correct? Yes, I, I, I agree with that, although I do think that matters are changing in political philosophy. Yeah, for the longest time, basically everything was about distribution of income and wealth, opportunities, and, and other goods, and very, very little reflection on power outside of the state, where then you just had a kind of bland, liberal hmm. consensus going on uh, that wasn't really focusing <laughs> where, uh, on, on, on what the problems were and the experiences of people. I do think that that's changing. We're seeing a revival of Republican theory. Hmm. Um, and some people starting to apply that to the workplace outside the context of, of the state. So I've been doing that. Alex Gurevich, um, Corey Robin, people like that are really concerned about those issues. Yeah, no, and I'm certainly with all of my statements, I should make clear it's not blanket. Like, just like I said, it's not, you know, I'm talking about the worst workplaces here, not all of them. And certainly I'm not talking about all political philosophers. But accepting it as a broad characterization, I have a spurious, unresearched hunch that, um, well, let me actually just read your book back to you. So you say this is in the second chapter. Um, no doubt many of us, especially most who are reading these lectures, do not find the situation so bad, talking about the situation in the workplace that we've been talking about. My readers are most likely tenured or tenure-track professors who, almost uniquely among organized workers in the United States, enjoy due process rights and a level of autonomy at work that is unmatched almost anywhere else among employees, end quote. So that seems to me a really plausible explanation as to why political philosophers focus quite a lot on income inequality but comparatively less on power inequality. Because for people with the level of specialized training that they have, like it's comparable to being a medical doctor or something, academics are comparatively poorly paid, certainly like adjunct faculty or so on. But, as you just say there, in terms of like being free from the operation of abusive power, they're almost uniquely protected. And I should make clear, I'm not saying like philosophy academics are snobs or that they live in an ivory tower or anything like that. Like my, my experiences with academics have been exactly the opposite of that. But it just is the case that they have a very unique employment situation. And that surely is going to affect the issues that they choose to think and write about. There's a lot to be said for that, but really they should be talking to their colleagues who are adjuncts. <laughs> you, know, ad, ad, you know, adjunct instructors are some of the most exploited, downtrodden people around. People have no idea how awful their conditions are. You know, there are a lot of adjuncts who are only paid a couple thousand dollars per course. Imagine that. Like, this is well below minimum wage if you actually counted the hours. Hmm. Far below minimum wage. They're practically starving. It's shocking that that's even permitted, hmm. uh, and they don't have they don't have much autonomy either, right? And you know they're on contingent contracts, so it's a, it's a guessing game whether they even get renewed the next semester. It's an incredibly precarious existence. They don't feel free to speak up against anything that's hmm. done to them in the workplace, any kind of arbitrary treatment. They don't, they don't really have the freedom to do that. So, yeah, if only, if only the tenured ones had more communication with the adjuncts, maybe they would learn a lot about academic work that is the actual conditions of work for the people who are actually teaching most of the students. As well as presumably the people who clean the offices or serve in the cafeteria or so on, who would have, you know, the same yeah. as most people in America. Um, but so then the thesis would be that the current dominant focus of political philosophy for maybe, I don't know, the past 40 or 50 years or so 
when Rawls, when was Rawls? Rawls was in the 70s, right? He yeah. published most yeah. of his stuff. So yeah, call it the last 50 years. Um, has been on a particular set of questions. And that focus has been in a relationship with the fact that the people doing that writing have had an employment situation and a lived experience that is quite unusual in the contemporary American economy. Whereas, if you look at the history of political thought, the people in the canon had all sorts of jobs as their like lived experience. And so their focus was on a broader set of concerns. That's, I don't know, that's a big, that's a freaking big historical thesis, but I think there's something to it. Well, uh, I do think that um, <clears throat> in different eras, a lot of philosophers were actually more practically engaged, like in actual politics. Hmm. Uh, and I think that can, can change people's perspective uh, because they're in contact with people who have complaints. Hmm. Um, Locke is actually a very interesting example of such a person. He was connected to Lord Shaftesbury, hmm. uh, who basically supported him. He was a secretary, but this, he was one of the radical Whigs. I'm actually researching Locke now and his connection to the work ethic. Locke developed, I think, a fairly radical interpretation of the Protestant work ethic hmm. on behalf of workers. Um, and that was part of the radical Whig strategy, um, since their electoral power depended on enfranchising ordinary workers in England to vote for them. Hmm. Um, a lot of Locke's agenda is, is, is actually trying to promote the interests of craftsmen, manufacturers, work, workers of all sorts, tenants, um, it's something that's under-recognized, I think, in, in contemporary readings uh, of Locke, and I, I'm trying to change that. So, yeah, I think political engagement on the left definitely changes philosophers' perspectives. I also want to point out, though, that the place where I think contemporary political philosophy really got started uh, thinking critically about power is among feminist philosophers and mm. philosophers of color. Like domination, power, I mean, that's been on the agenda for a long time. Um, the personal is political, uh, right? I mean, that feminist slogan that has really been an inspiration for a lot of feminist political theory, thinking about the conditions of uh, not just women, uh, people of color, and any kind of marginalized and oppressed group. Um, there's a lot of a lot of productive work on that. Or Charles Mills writing about the domination contract and how that works, the structure race relations. Um, yeah, so issues of power and domination outside of the context of the state have definitely been explored, um, but not really by the sort of generic mainstream political philosophy where where it's just liberals duking it out with libertarians. Right. Uh, uh, but certainly feminist theory, critical race theory, uh, things like that, you see a lot more attention to these issues of domination. Yeah. So that's where I was going with that, is that it's an argument for diversity, ultimately. Correct. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's... <laughs> You know, it's hard to see your power and privilege if you occupy it, right? right. I mean, it, <laughs> this just seems like normal. Well, yeah, this is how, you know, people should be treated. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm just thinking, I did um, on the podcast, I do the interviews and I also do narrative histories. And I did a narrative history of, li li like you say, liberalism versus libertarianism from like 1850 to 1950. And I'm struggling to think of a single person I mentioned in that who wasn't a white guy. Harriet Taylor... <laughs> Harriet Taylor... And, and a rich white guy at that. Uh -huh. um, I think Harriet Taylor Mill would be the only one, just because I, I referenced the thing that she might have like had a bigger authorship of some of those works than people think. But then that only comes to us through her relationship with a white guy, right? Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, you're quite right. Like... 
to the extent that issues of power and domination and sort of the lived experience side of this come in, it's through feminist philosophers and critical race theory, which I'm not a super expert on. Um, but so ultimately, the punchline to my argument would be the necessity of diversifying the academic space, both because it's, you know, fairness and equal opportunity to let people in, but also because you can end up producing something that has an overtly narrow focus if the people producing it come from an overtly narrow substrata of society. Exactly right, yes. So, yes, there's a, there's a clear intellectual case for diversifying uh, academics. Uh, you know, people coming from different social situations, ask different questions, notice different problems, <clears throat> try out different methods. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, that's what happens when you have contact with different aspects of social reality, is you explore different things, and that gives us a fuller picture of what's really going on. Yeah. I mean, I like that as a punchline to end the the conversation with. I, I mentioned this in my um, last interview um, with uh, uh, Ryan Enos, a political scientist at Harvard, and we, we both sort of said there's, you know, there's a lot of focus on the left right now of making the case against discrimination. And, you know, correctly, we shouldn't discriminate. But also just making the positive case for diversity. It seems like this, yeah. this field of political theory has been massively enriched and kind of made relevant again by its diversification over the past Absolutely. 30, 40 years or so. And then if it had only been upper-middle-class white guys. I mean, sorry, I am a middle-class white guy, no offence, people, but if it had only been us from rules through to today, we could still be just circling around this minutiae of, like, the right and the good and the whatever out of any real connection to, to talking relevantly about real people's lived experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say the right and the good are minutiae, though. <laughs> Those are really big topics. <laughs> Okay, no, I, I went too far there. Um, I take the heretical <laughs> position that the good is prior to the right, but we won't get into any of that. <laughs> um, final question on this, then. Um, is, is that also a case... One of the things that strikes me is a lot of the people in the history of political thought were politicians, right? Or, or were political actors of yeah. some kind. If we want to diversify in terms of, like, which we certainly do, I think, in terms of, like, the different demographic groups who are producing political theory and political philosophy, do we also want to um, diversify in terms of the um, career trajectories, should we say, of the people who are producing political philosophy? And I will say this, it sounds like a lot of what I'm saying is like an argument against traditional academics. It's not at all. There is a great deal to be said for having someone who can just spend all their time reading whatever books they want to read. And it shows in the conversation where I have, where a lot of my political experience comes from just being in the grind of political campaigns and doing campaign and advocacy work and so on. And I get into this and I sort of say, something about God knows lock or something and then that person can come back to me with but you need to understand x y and z about what these words meant in context and what has been said about them historically and a level of granularity in their knowledge that I that just don't have you know and that degree of expertise is absolutely an essential part of the conversation so I'm certainly not saying all people or even the majority of people doing political philosophy need to have career trajectories like me. But I, I do wonder if it wouldn't be valuable if, like, when's the last person producing, like, political philosophy that we teach in classes who was a career politician, for instance, you know? Yeah. I know. Well, that's, that is really interesting. I mean, I'm all in favor of expanding the canon. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, especially in political philosophy, um, there's a lot of, you know, pamphlet literature, uh, that articulates alternative perspectives that haven't been canonized. Mm. It's really worth engaging that stuff. 
Um, you know, none of the levelers in the 17th century were canonized, but boy, they're damn good political philosophers. Yeah. Have you ever read the Putney debate? I've not. Everybody should read the Putney debates. These are unbelievably great because another thing they show is how sharp and smart ordinary people can be if they're confronted with a matter of extreme urgency, a political, a fundamental political debate. They're unbelievably smart. These are not, you know, these are not academics. You read the Pani debates, but it's a, it's philosophy, political philosophy carried out at a level of sophistication. Uh, that that's as good as anything you're going to read in the canon, with the stakes actually real. Mm. So, mid seventeenth century, the king has been captured by the army. Mm. And the uh, representatives of uh, the New Model Army meet in Putney with Cromwell and Ireton to discuss, well, what are they going to do with this king? (laughs) And what should the new constitution look like? The levelers presented a Republican constitution. Uh, They wanted to abolish the House of Lords. They wanted a universal franchise. Uh, they wanted to abolish the Lord's privileges, all of them, just end it all, <laughs> right? It's a radical democratic agenda. It's not so different from what the Chartists proposed uh, uh, in the first half of the 19th century. Um, and Cromwell, you know, more conservative. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and they had these amazing arguments about, well, about things like the franchise. How how broad should it be? Well, it's the universal male franchise. They're not talking about franchising women. Mm. Although, if you read Locke carefully, I, what my argument is that Locke was basically endorsing the Leveler Constitution, and there's actually not a single word in Locke uh, that could lead to a restriction of the franchise to men alone. I actually think that its fundamental principles entail that women would need to get it too, at least have have the right. Uh, to participate in the formation of a constitution. Um, and then once they had that right, why would they agree to be disenfranchised under that constitution? It's hard to see an argument for that. <laughs> and indeed, Locke himself was accused of, uh, of endorsing principles that would lead to the enfranchisement of women. And you know what his response was no. to that accusation? Complete silence. Mm. <laughs> I think sometimes silence speaks volume. Anyway, <laughs> everyone should go just Google the Pony debates. They're available online and start reading them, and you'll just be blown away. Three days of debates taken down verbatim mm. by a very excellent scribe, and you'll see how smart ordinary people can be engaging in political philosophy at a very high level of sophistication, you'll be blown away. Day one is not that interesting, but day, days two and three are when they really get to the guts of the Constitution and, and, and they're, they're arguing. We know actually that the debates were continued a couple extra days, but for some reason, I don't know, maybe the scribe got writer's cramp or something because we, <laughs> we don't have a transcription uh, uh, of what they argued. Um, but it is, it's, it's very powerful, non-canonical stuff, and really ought to be canonized. Just ordinary soldiers, mm. right, are arguing with the powers that be. We've never had, like, there was this, what, what was the, um, the Council of Trent or Nicaea, where they just sat down and had a debate about what goes in the Bible? I don't know that political philosophy has ever had a big sit-down moment where we're like, what's in our canon? But we, we, we should, because, like, there's some yeah. stuff that, like, definitely wants... I haven't even heard of this, and I will, I will look it up, and we've got a good reading suggestion for our listeners. But there's a lot of stuff that could be in there that, like... You know, we, we need a moment where we all sit down and say, this should be in the canon, or this should be, or this should be. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, when I teach... A, I have this course on 19th century political philosophy that I like to teach. The 19th century is like this amazing era of ferment. And, you know, I like to mix up canonical and non-canonical authors and have them argue with each other. Uh, A really great author 
very, very shrewd um, political psychologist is uh, um, Douglas, Frederick Douglas, mm. the great, uh, you know, fugitive slave in free person arguing against slavery. This guy's amazingly smart, incredibly sharp, fantastic writer, incredibly powerful. He blows away just so many other writers in his power. So, yeah, I mean, he, he, signed up, he, was, a, he was a political actor of enormous import mm. um, uh, before, during, and after the Civil War. Um, so he had a lot of writing. It, it's all very powerful. Definitely should be canonized. Because people sort of, the argument would be, well, look, it just happens to be the case that historically most of these works were written by, like, rich white guys. But, but, you know, but, but that's not that true. People say that in ignorance. You know, now there's a lot of more archival work going on. So there's a flourishing, for instance, uh, now uh, historical research on, in early modern philosophy and mm. digging up a lot of women philosophers in the early modern period. Mm. Uh, these are really interesting people. And once you bring them back in, it actually subtly shifts your view of what was going on in, in the 17th and 18th centuries. Mm. And not, not just a political philosophy, we're looking at like, you know, metaphysics, epistemology, women are engaged. Mm. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of these pronouncements, well, it was all just white guys, as it was really based on ignorance. Yeah, because, and there's also a number of works by male philosophers who were increased, people are increasingly arguing were written, were actually mainly women doing the work there. So John Stuart yeah. Mill comes to mind there. I'm not. Right, well, Bill himself, I mean, cr- credited Harriet Taylor for the subjection of women. Right. And I think the harm principle was in her private notes quite some time before mm-hmm. that book was... And I, I'm not an expert on the details or anything, but I think that the, the, the argument has been made in a way that people are finding increasingly credible, that mm-hmm. Mill wasn't just being a nice, doting husband when he said she was the primary author. She was the primary author, you know? So that's, that's a nice place to end as, like, a call for a diversification and a more open-minded exploration of the canon and the historical sources that we, that we look at, right? Um, I mean, Douglas yeah. is a great example. Um, Douglas, I do know mm-hmm. a bit. I mean, I know Douglas because I've spent a lot of time with um, Orlando Patterson's writings, and he yeah. draws, very, <laughs> in particularly in Slavery and Social Death, he says his first chapter there is just an extended thesis on Douglas, his yeah. work, essentially. So I know, I know Douglas through Patterson. Yeah, there's no reason at all Douglas shouldn't be in our canon. It's kind of disgraceful that he isn't. Yeah. Okay. Um, I like that as an end point. Um, your, the book is Private Government. Is there anywhere else you'd like to direct our listeners to go to check out your work or follow you or anything like that? So I do recommend for anybody who's interested in issues of uh, racial inequality, but also more generally um, group inequality and how that works, mm. uh, to take a look at my book, The Imperative of Integration. Okay. Um, I think it's also relevant to immigration debates that are happening in the UK, uh, even, even, even insofar as they don't have a particularly racial angle to them. Mm. Uh, integration of immigrants is really critical to making immigration a success story in, for everyone involved. And the imperative of integration, although it has a U.S. focus, uh, generalizes, I think, to a lot of the European experience yeah i've been um on the ground with that fight a little bit in the u.s as you know we're having um as we're recording this there's been a number of ice raids of trying to um you know detain and deport immigrants in the u.s and i've been doing a certain amount of activism volunteering about educating communities about their rights and what legal resources they should have um if that should happen to them yeah. yeah, it's 
little bit of a scary time, actually, for those issues. It's actually right now. very frightening. But but I also just want to stress how much of what's happening in in the U.S. and frankly in a lot of Europe with, with about immigrants, it's it's very fear driven. Yeah. Enormous amounts of fear, and the fear is coming from places that where people don't really have a lot of contact mm. with immigrants. So you know it's it's. It's not surprising that the big uh, cosmopolitan uh, uh, locations are welcoming of immigrants because that's where they are. People develop a skill set to interact with people who, who came from different places and they're okay with that. You, you go out to more rural areas uh, where encountering immigrants is not all that common. Mm. People don't, people don't have that skill set, it, 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 and, and they're frankly afraid. Uh, they're really <laughs> uncomfortable. So just give you an example. Um, uh, I, I, I was talking with a former member of the philosophy department staff hmm. some months ago who I know lives in a rural area and is a Trump voter, and she had recently <clears throat> switched jobs. Uh, she moved out of the philosophy department and got a, a bigger job with more pay doing the same kind of work in the Department of Modern Languages, so in, in the Romance Languages. So there are people from France, Italy, Spain, and so forth uh, uh, that now she's working with. I said, so how is your new job working out for you? And, you know, she, she did like the, the higher pay and the greater responsibility. It's a much bigger department. Uh, but she says, you know, I always wonder, out in the hallways, people are speaking French and Spanish and Italian. Are they talking about me? <laughs> what are they saying about me? <laughs> and that just really, I think, gives me enormous insight, I think, into the minds of people who are troubled by immigration. Mm. Right? They, they think... <laughs> Well, why would anyone speak every language? Because well, they want to say something bad about you. Well, no, actually, because this is the Department of Romance Languages, and people are talking these languages because they're here to study them, and many of them are native speakers, and te- teaching, and other, and other students are practicing the language if they're learning it, and you know, it's like, what makes them think they, what, they, what makes you think that they're talking about you? But, right, she's... She's coming from a different world mm. in which in which that fear and suspicion is commonplace because she is induced mm. to interacting with people, and there's a lot of fear and discomfort, and they don't like it. So, <laughs> but that's that's what yeah. all of the social science says, right? Is contact. Specifically, yeah. like living in the same neighborhood is the big one, but working, you know, all the way down to working like just. Together. Yeah, I mean, I think actually she might even get over it uh, over time, getting used to having interaction with the people in her new department. Um, at least I, I hope she will learn. But the evidence does suggest that people do learn uh, if they're in the right settings. Um, and, and that because you, you, you get an expanded skill set. And that's one of the genius features of the contemporary metropolis is that people acquire those skill sets and then they're cool with immigrants because, hey, what's the problem? Here's opportunities for, uh, you know, uh, positive engagement on both sides. Do you... So this is this is like way off anything we agreed to discuss, but do you, I worry, and I feel quite strongly that in our American mythology, that um, we've over-elevated the virtues of rural life, which I'm not saying that there's not, and we've... Um, we've sort of stigmatized in our mythology the city as the city is a place of crime and corruption and squalor, which it can be. But we, we, there's not a big enough space in our American symbolism for the great virtues of cities as these incredible yeah. engines <clears throat> of integration and um, cultural exchange, you know? Yeah, so I think it's a complicated issue. Yes, in certain ways, they are engines of, of integration for 
for immigrants. But of course, in other ways, racism, in particular, anti-black racism, the scale of anti-black racism can never be exaggerated in America. <laughs> and you do see that in cities. So, you know, basically, the, it, it, it's, it interacts strongly with class inequality. So if you look at the major metropolitan era, uh, areas, places like New York City, Chicago, you have super rich people, and then you have poor people, and that pretty closely correlates with race. So the rich people are sending all their kids to private schools, which are virtually all white. And it's really the public schools have been left to, to black children. And, of course, they're underfunded because the people with the money aren't sending their kids there. So what do they care? Yeah, but the, the answer to that, though, is more integration, right? Like- yes, I agree completely. I, I think that's, that's what you got to do. And that's why I'm, I favor, you know, affirmative action at the university level, although to tell you the truth, it's coming way too late. We really need it. We really need integration in K-12, but that's where the parents tend to be most panicky, <laughs> even though it's completely irrational. It's just, it's just, it's not that the fears are, are not grounded in reality. They're grounded in centuries of racist propaganda. Yeah, I mean, this is on my mind because I've um, my last interview was just on the um, sort of social science regarding uh, segregation and um, integration. And and one point I made there, which I think I, I touched on with you, is we really need to be going out and making the positive case for integration, not just at the you know the the top of society that that would be affected by affirmative action, but but down the line. You know, because yeah. I, you know, I agree with affirmative action, but that's only ever going to affect a minority of black people who have the ability to go to an elite university. If yes, that- I agree. And so here, here's a place where you can combine the concern about racial inequality with the concern about workers. So if you look at one of the most important sites of racial integration, it's actually in labor unions. And now, American labor unions, there's also a lot of racism there, but in fact, what happened was the labor movement, you know, unions learned their lesson. When they tried to be all white, corporations would hire black strike breakers. There's no path forward, no path forward for unions without racial integration. And if you look at the first large-scale labor movement in the United States, which started shortly after uh, the end of the Civil War, it was the Knights of Labor, which was explicitly anti-racist. It was racially integrated black and white workers alike. They're organizing the South, met with an extreme brutal violence, including just slaughter of workers. Uh, but they, they were a force uh, in the first couple of decades uh, after the end of the Civil War, and they were explicitly a black-white coalition. Now, even they had some racism because they didn't like the Chinese. It's like, (laughs) somebody's got to be excluded from this, but (laughs) it's not a typical American pattern, you know? (laughs) They're, like, really principled about bringing in blacks, and then somehow the Chinese don't fit. Well, okay, go figure, but (laughs) yeah. But yeah, it's a lesson that the American labor movement had to learn <clears throat> over and over again. But the destruction of labor unions now has become pretty much a disaster for for it, because it was one of the most important sites for black-white coalitions uh, and 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 movement building outside the context of a formal political party, right? Because political parties can't do all the political acts. You know this. Right, political parties have a function, but really, especially if they're on the left, they need social movements independent of the party to kind of push them <laughs> to do the right thing, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> the vitality of independent, independently organized social movements that are not themselves political parties is needed to, to keep the political party, right, the, the left political party responsive. Right. It, it, it's just critical. And so if you 
So the loss of the labor movement in the United States has been pretty much a disaster also. So that's for, like, the statistic yeah. is my in my head is you go from like Reagan in the 80s, you get from like 30-some percent of the population being unionized to what, like less than 10% now? Like, oh, it's like in the private sector, it's like 6%. Yeah, that's that's pretty shocking. It's almost negligible. I mean, it, <laughs> but it, it's still the the hatred of the plutocratic class for unions. They're not going to be satisfied until there's no unions left. So this goes to like my argument about um, domination and humiliation. Is why you know unions are at six percent. They're not. Your power is not the plutocratic class. Your power is not threatened. You're fine. You've won, right? But they still they won totally. But they still, it, it, really, at this point, it's such insatiable greed and, and such a, a lunatic quest for untrammeled power. It's really at, at a scale of megalomania. Yes, exactly. It, 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 it's, it's it's incredible. It's the fanaticism that's also been inspired by pathological political ideologies. It's not just libertarianism, it's like Ayn Rand. Yes. Um, but doesn't... I mean, it's like, it's... it's doesn't that it's go to fanatical. my point of, like, it's that second currency? It's not about the currency of rational, egoic pursuit anymore, although the ideology of that has served to justify it. You know, what's the point of your fourth billion dollars? Like, what does that do for you after you've already got three billion? It's about yeah, I mean, the demand for deference, the ability to, <laughs> to dominate. That's what's that. It's that other <laughs> currency, you know? But, you know, it, 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 it's, I mean, at this point, it's really interesting. So I, I've been working on the work ethic, and you know you have to go back, of course, to Max Weber's classic Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, where he's talking about the work ethic and how it how it sprang out of the Reformation, particularly out of Calvinism. And um, you know, Weber points out that at, at, at some point, this fanatical quest for more and more money has an end in itself. I mean, he's he struck. Now, Weber claimed to be a value-neutral social scientist, but even he couldn't stop commenting on how just, like, irrational it is. What, more and more money? Just money is an end in itself? Like, he can't even figure out how to spend it. He's, <laughs> like, lunatic. But this, but this is, yeah, I mean, maybe it's a status symbol? I, it, it's unclear. I mean, he, the money is so gigantic. You wonder, why do they need more? No, it's insatiable greed. I, I, I think you just said it, though. It's a status symbol. It's that other currency. This is no longer about a rational Newtonian universe of discrete individuals. No, no, this is this older, darker thing of the desire to be formed over, the desire to have... Oh, yeah, them. I think that's right. But, you know, but, but even fawning at some level, it, you know getting an extra zero in your bank account. It's like the people who are fawning, like they can't, they, they can't even tell the difference. Who can tell the difference between a billionaire and a multi-billionaire? Yeah. <laughs> you know what um, I mean? <laughs> there's um, a quote. So um, there's a quote about this um, from Keynes of all people. I recently spent a bit of time with John Maynard Keynes and I'd forgotten how fricking good a writer he is. Oh, he's a Writer, yes. Um, yes. So he said about this specific thing, he said, in a future more moral and more rational age, quote, the desire for money for its own sake, as opposed to the desire for money to fulfill the needs and wants of life, will ultimately be recognized for what it really is a disgusting morbidity, a semi criminal, <laughs> semi pathological <laughs> propensity, which one hands off with a shudder to specialists in mental disease. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and this is spoken by a guy who act, who saw his task as saving capitalism from itself. Yes. <laughs> um, and one of the questions I asked in my series when I I looked at Keynes is Keynes was loathed and reviled by the capitalist class of the time. That, yes. this, is, this is the guy who set up the modern international finance system, right? 
and the, the moneyed interests wouldn't have it. And this is why we have libertarianism, because they gave a huge amount of money to Hayek and all of these people to promote that ideology specifically to counter what they saw as the collectivist evils of Kenyanism. Um, And it's this thing of like... Yeah, it's like they can't be comfortable unless millions are unemployed in a recession and starving and scraping around. But this is the guy guy who saved capitalism in many ways. And they won't even allow reforms to save themselves. In a way, it's not just not that rationally it's deeply irrational and against actually their own long-run security but that yes i agree but it's just like these boeing people right profits that never mind that in fact this incredibly risky uh management style led to two crashes that could could well stink boeing as an enterprise the insatiable greed to maximize profits in the short run just completely cancels out that and that's what you have is this unconstrained capitalism, unconstrained feeds the egos of the people running it, the plutocrats. But in fact, they could easily bring disaster upon themselves. And I must say, this was a sorry missed opportunity from the last economic, the global economic recession of 2008. Really, the Obama administration should have had all those bankers' heads. Yes. And they're forced. As well, I mean, why weren't they all? You know, these people should not have been bailed out. They should have been sent to prison. But this and is it was a horrible missed opportunity. This is where we have to say, though, ideas matter. I mean, Keynes had a nice quote on that as well, right? But like, the ideas yeah. of economists and political philosophers are more powerful than is commonly understood, in that what was the barrier to making the real reforms that were needed after the 08 crash was ideological, right? I mean, to a certain degree, ideology. I also think that <clears throat> too big to fail is a thing. I mean, it was enormous panic. I mean, it is true that if the banks actually just all went bankrupt, which they could easily have, easily could have happen that would be that would sink the rest of the economy yeah but there's a way of doing it where i mean we, we're getting way over here but like there's a way of doing that where you go and nationalize then right if that's the case go yeah, in I think I, there was no chance on earth that obama could have nationalized it just that was not even conceivably on the agenda but, but what real what's really needed i think as a recession fighting tool what happened was the banks were bailed up, but the poor mortgage holders and everybody on loans were not bailed out. Every, and everyone understands the injustice of this. I mean, it's important to recognize that Trump voters also understand that that was an outrageous injustice. Why should the plutocrats who got us into this crisis all get bailed out and float high with multi-million dollar bonuses while, while other people are getting foreclosed upon, including people who did not make irresponsible mortgages at all? They just lost their jobs due to recession, due to no fault of their own, and all the fault on these reckless speculators. There's a lot of rage out there, um, and rightly so, by the way. Um, <clears throat> and I think, but even then, I, I think the idea of nationalizing the banks, that, that wouldn't have flown. What, a better recession-fighting tool, though, instead of handing cash to the banks and hoping against hope that they'll loan it out to keep businesses afloat. I think they just should have handed cash to the bottom 50% or maybe the bottom 70% or something. Just hand out cash and then you, then everybody gets bailed out. Yeah. But the barriers to that are our entire ruling class has, I mean, I'm sounding like a Marxist almost here, but our entire ruling class have bought into an ideology that sort of rules out those things in advance. So it's yeah. not credible in quotes. It's not, you know, feasible. It's put the, the, the doing it. There's no mechanical problem. The government spent trillions of dollars fighting that recession. You know, you the, the mechanism yeah. to just mail out checks is, you know, it's not like we physically yeah, lack the ability. scale with the stimulus, but it mostly went in the pockets of people who are already pretty well off. What, I, what I'm thinking of is, no, you, you just mail a check for a few thousand bucks to the people at the bottom. Right. That, that would take care of the recession and help people other than bankers. 
Well, that's what Keynes said, right? Didn't he recommend just put money in bottles in the ground and have people dig it up? (laughs) (laughs) But you don't even have to put them through digging it up. Just just give it to them. I don't like just hand it to them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so frustrating to think of these stuff because the binders... On the one hand, it seems like an ideological binder is like less move, more movable. Like we should just be able to clean out the bad ideas and do what needs to be done. But you can't. Like ideologies you know, are hard and they're powerful. Right. I mean, it, it's power that it, power just has enormous influence on what people believe. <laughs> but and we see this not only with respect to ideology, but even like basic facts. Why is there still denial of climate change in the United States because the fossil fuel industry is funding climate change deniers. It's money and power, and it's it's lunacy. It's just crazy. But I think that also goes to this thing of the will to dominate and have your ego stroked and to not just dominate but to humiliate others is so strong that people ignore their own long-run interest. Yes, it's completely transparent with Trump in particular is that He's a pathological liar, but he needs to coerce other people into going along with his lies. Otherwise, he's not happy. But once you've done that, you've basically soiled yourself, and you lose all credibility, but but they're willing to do it. Yeah. Well, to tie it back to something we, we've been talking about this whole time, about like there's this long tradition in political thought of the brutalizing and corrupting aspects of holding power and and people don't even care anymore yeah but is there no republican party with just a couple of dissenters who then are going to get elected you know lose their next election the entire republican party has just gone down on their knees and they're worshiping trump yeah It's, it's like there's no 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 moral courage at all they're going along in fact now they're even aping his 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 bullying lying and everything else a man, a man who as closely as any politician I've ever seen resembles Plato's tyrant. Oh, absolutely. You're totally right about this. Plato nailed Trump. I mean, right. Right. This person who knows no moral constraints at all. And yes, not, not only moral constraints, no rational constraints, just this unconstrained id bouncing from dark desire to dark desire, where yes. all the better parts of the psyche have been stripped out, and you're left with just this stream of consciousness of all yes. of the nastiest parts of that human. It, it, yes. it captures it perfectly, I think. I agree completely. I agree completely. I'll- all right. Um, Professor Anderson, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much yeah, for doing this really today. Fun. Good talking to you.